This is the Diabolique webcast, and I'm your host, Stephen Slaughterhead. Joining me again, of course, is David Kleiler. David's a former film professor at Babson College and former artistic director at the Coolidge Corner Theater here in Brookline, Massachusetts. On this episode, we're going to discuss Brian De Palma's 1980 film, Dressed to Kill, which will be released on Blu-ray in August by the Criterion Collection. So let's get to it. film he did with Nicolas Cage where the, it's, the, it's almost like a... Um, Snake Eyes? Okay, that's it. I All think. Right. Okay, good. That's when it starts off. It looks like a continuous shot for an hour. Yeah. Okay. But Some no would say that's one of his failures. But... Uh, it was a disaster. Yeah. But the opening shot was interesting. Yeah. Strangely enough, I guess over the past... Within the past year or so, I've seen a, a couple of appreciations of it. Wasn't enamored with it. I all I do is remember the shot in Nicolas Cage. That's all I remember it, I, it all about it. Yeah. Okay. We get going. Yeah, we're good to go. We've been recording. <laughs> oh, we're recording. Yeah, we're recording. Great. <laughs> this this is the uh, um, Vanya on Forty Second Street int- introduction. All of a sudden, you're just in the podcast. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, uh, well, we do begin in Medias Race every now and then, but. Um, yeah. Dressed to Kill is a favorite of people who love Brian De Palma, and it's hard to understand what uh, the fun of Dressed to Kill without knowing the works of Alfred Hitchcock pretty well. Yeah. It's uh, even though Brian De Palma, in throughout his career, has shown not only his love for Hitchcock, but he's shown off the fact, hey, I went to film school and I know all these things. I, Roger Ebert said not only his um, something something to the effect of not only his love for Hitchcock, but the audacity to do Hitchcock as the balls. Well, he does do that, and uh, it is audacious. On the other hand, can the film stand up independently of the knowledge of Hitchcock? Mm -hmm. I mean, Hitchcock is much of it as a tour to force filmmaker as he was, and there's no question about it, Dress to Kill has some major league tour de force sequences. Uh, That opening scene in the in the art gallery that's, I guess, maybe 10 minutes without dialogue. And, uh, I mean, basically you have a, a film that uh, you have uh, the one of the stars gets bumped off, not unlike Psycho, yeah. in the first third of the film. Yeah. And uh, as the plot unfolds, it has a plot that's frighteningly similar to that of, of Psycho. Yeah. With a few other touches thrown in, like the absolutely great set piece of the museum. Wait a minute, this reminds me of the museum scenes in Vertigo. Oh, yeah. And some of the music... That was one of the films that inspired De Palma to be a filmmaker, was Vertigo. Which now, some of these national, uh, international critics associations, some people say uh, Vertigo is the greatest film of all time, let alone the, uh, the greatest Hitchcock film. I'll pass on that one. Uh, but there's well, I'm partial to Orson Welles, so I don't. I, 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 all I these expressionist directors, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm uh, Hitchcock and Polanski and Bunuel are more Freudian than Wells, even though Wells has his. So, but they're all great stylists. Mm. But but De Palma certainly is a stylist. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a that's a good way to put it. More over narrative. Yeah, and. Dress to Kill is great fun. It's a thriller, 
But part of the fun of the film is seeing uh, what he's doing with Hitchcock. Instead of just one shower murder, we get two. More nudity than uh, than Psycho. The dual personality. And the you, but you've got, and even uh, you have, not quite at the end of the film, but close to it. Instead of having uh, only, uh, you get duality all the way through, and of course that's very much what De Palma. After all, he did body double. Mm-hmm. He, he's really great with this sort of duality stuff. Uh, you have two shrinks as opposed to one shrink. You, you have two naked women taking showers. You have two yeah. shrinks. Uh, it, it's it's sort of fun that way. But um, with one, uh, you have Michael Sh- uh, Caine being a shrink that Angie Dickinson goes to. Not unlike Psycho, there's all kinds of sexual repression going on in their interchanges. But um, you have when the uh, second shrink comes in and makes an explanation for what it's all about, it's close to a parody of, of Simon Oakland's explanation of uh, why what's wrong with Tony Perkins at the end of Psycho. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the body one the one half takes over the other half, all that kind of thing. It is. It's, it is it's similar. close to similar. almost close to line by line. And my only, uh, I mean, it's great fun to sit through, but Hitchcock's films, where was Hitchcock in, in, in the great Hollywood tradition? On the one hand, Psycho is great fun to sit through. On the one hand, one can see it as a horror film. One can see it as an extremely dark comedy. And one can also see it on a deeper level in terms of sort of an existentialist fable. Mm. Um, but Hitchcock can have it always in that one can simply enjoy Psycho without knowing any of the rest of the stuff. So his films are, on the one hand, fun. Uh, on the other hand, about something. And as the master of uh, uh, appearances are deceiving, which Hitchcock was, he would he would just camouflage films that might have deeper meaning by making them just plain fun. Uh, in many ways, he's not unlike Howard Hawks, who on the one hand, a, a piece of wonderful fluff like bringing a baby is really about the problems of uh, Cary Grant getting a boner. I mean, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it, 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 you can read it on both levels mm-hmm. uh, equally. And, but you can take a five-year-old to see uh, bringing a baby and we can't bring a five-year-old to see Psycho, that's true, uh, mm-hmm. and, or, or Breast to Kill. Both films are, especially Dress to Kill, is very R-rated. But um, in many ways, Dress to Kill seems to be more about, I know Hitchcock, uh, and look what I can do, and I really can master film technique. It's beautifully shot. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, what's it about? It's fun. Uh, well, I think it's that De Palma has this interest in pathology and following the... Um, the things that people do who are either being watched or under a particular amount of psychological pressure doing things that they normally normally wouldn't do. Certainly that's the way he takes his fundamental remake. This, if this is in one way a remake of Psycho or mm-hmm. a rethinking of Psycho or uh, then Obsession with Cliff Robinson and Jean-Pierre Bourgeois mm-hmm. is a rethinking of Vertigo. Uh, but with, or, again, uh, without or the complexity, being a, a revision rev- version of uh, Blow Up. Yeah, for Antonioni, uh, but he can't forget his Hitchcock. There, when you get to the end of the film, you've got the uh, the fireworks uh, explosions from the end of uh, To Catch a Thief. Yeah, he, he throws in his Hitchcock even yeah. there. <laughs> like, uh, the, it's uh, another one of um, De Palma's three hundred and six degree, you know, reaction shots. 
Yeah, and he and it is spectacular to look at and what he does and actually blow out. Of course, it's a deliberate reference to the film Blow Up. Mm. And just whereas Blow Up was about the blowing up of a, of a, um, of a photograph, Blow Out deals with sound and recordings mm-hmm. uh, in a very clever way. Uh, what was the year of Blowout? Do you remember? 81. 81. So it's a few years after Coppola yeah. did something similar with the conversation. Right. Uh, where he does, where you had the whole notion of getting down to this little piece of thing where you, you, you uh, dialogue. In, in many ways, both films are tour de force pieces of filmmaking. Mm. But again, conversation is a little bit deeper. And uh, well, with Blowout, it's interesting because it's about it's it's about the sort of the industrious the industry of filmmaking in a way, and then using that uh, you know the sound design the sound recorder's uh, ability to distinguish sounds to uh, pick up on certain things to solve the mystery as it gets yeah. uh, wound up in it, which is you know interesting that that whole film industry process. Yeah, because actually that is you know sort of like a separate subject from the film he's invoking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, oh, and then body double rear window. Yeah, you know. Yeah, in many ways, De Palma is like a harbinger for. Uh, look, I know films, so she paves the way for somebody like Tarantino, whose films all re- I know films. Yeah, Tarantino's a big fan of Casualties of War, which is a film about something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the least known and least revived De Palma films, but it may well. And it catches you by surprise because it's so deadly serious and doesn't quite show off. Mm. Gee, I know about film uh, as much as the other films. The actors are really good. They've got well-developed uh, characters and roles and that kind of thing. Uh, it, I'm not sure. I haven't seen the film in years. Mm. I'm not sure one would be able to go walk into it uh, the way you could with body doubles. Oh, immediately, you know, it's a De Palma film. Yeah. Now, just the war it would be hard for me to think about it as a, uh, a rec- immediately recognizable De Palma film. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I would, I would guess that a number of other people think the same way about it. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't like, like Mission Impossible, I don't immediately think that that's a uh, Brian De Palma film, or Mission to Mars, you know. Oh, I forgot Mission to Mars. Yeah, I think a lot of people have tried to. <laughs> okay, is it that bad? Yeah, yeah I didn't see it. No, thirty years or over thirty years later, with Dress to Kill Again. Yeah, because it with even with his uh, music composer, I mean, I remember when I first saw Dress to Kill, there weren't other uh, people like De Palma doing these elaborate, in many ways, recreations of uh, of classics, and certainly very in a way melodramatic, you know, versions. And Pino Donaggio's score certainly assists, helps make it uh, that way. But it's sort of funny because even with that score, which is certainly good, but it's like, okay, I recognize the screeching violins. Okay, I mean, maybe there have been too many films made since then where somebody does that kind of thing where, okay, no, we're talking about Psycho now. We all know Mm -hmm. this. And whereas it didn't seem, uh, you know, when I first saw the film, it didn't seem, yeah, I knew it was Psycho. And there's also new, there there were moments of vertigo. But on the end, it's not as if De Palma was the first one to do that kind of thing. Mm. The French New Wave, especially the films of Truffaut, were in many ways uh, included homages to their favorite, you know, favorite directors. It's interesting that you, uh, you mentioned that because De Palma was a big fan, is a big fan of Godard. 
and he wanted to be known to Palma in his career as the the American guitar, uh, at, you know, the forefront of the the American new wave. You know, he was he was very well regarded as a filmmaker in the uh, like early '60s, I guess, in uh, Greenwich Village when he started making uh, short films. And then I, I guess he did a couple of features with De Niro. I guess that we're... Uh, Hi, did, Mom. Uh, yeah, very good. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I saw that. later on, Murder a la Mode, I think was Didn't his first that. sort of thriller comedy. Um, yeah, De Niro did that before he made Mean Streets. Um, yeah. The Hi, Mom. Yeah. And did he do a film called Greetings, too? I, I think so. I also want to say there was one called The Wedding. I don't remember that um, one. Let me see here. I got the filmography... Let's see, short films, Arcaris, Wanton's Wake, Murder a la Mode, Greetings, The Wedding Party, then Hi Mom. Okay, so I saw both Greetings and Hi Mom, and I remember when they came out. I'm substantially older than you, so I do remember when these things came out. And they were regarded as uh, really, there wasn't really an American independent film movement then, Mm. but it was the first group of people coming out of, say, NYU's film school, let's say. And Greetings and Hi, Mom were really loads of fun. They weren't as slick and polished, say, as Dressed to Kill is. But there was a kind of an, an improv quality and yeah. a kind of a... Uh, they were kind of fun. They were like a breath of fresh air even then against films that were just studio-made. You're, well, you're right. You know, he was part of the maybe the first generation that was cinema literate. Scorsese's the, part of that generation. Yeah. Coppola's part of that generation. McDonovich mm-hmm. is. Um, oh, yeah. And so the, the films do show, look at me, I've been to film school uh, kind of thing. But uh, but it's okay. I mean, after all... Well, they, uh, were, they were arty. There was a lot of jump cutting. There was a lot of uh, yeah. slow motion and fast motion. He liked peck and pop. And, but not unlike the kind of way, say, like uh, Truffaut was having a... Uh, playing around with genre and technique and, say, a movie like shoots a piano player or the jump cutting in a Godard film and in some of Truffaut's film. I mean, after all, don't forget, it's in 1966, I think, and just as De Palma was emerging as a filmmaker, uh, Truffaut did all of his, Hitch- his interviews with Hitchcock. Yeah. So the book, I still have it, you know, Hitchcock, Truffaut. Yeah. And it's still a basic text for those who care about those things. And I'm sure De Palma had it. And uh, in, in many ways, like in you know, a movie with Jean Moreau, uh, the Truffaut may called The Bride Wore Black. Okay, you've seen Notorious, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and with a lot of these other, other shots. And it's so funny, though. Um, maybe I'm trying to place myself in a, in a, in a context of time. You, you, you see you know, the, this first generation of people who studied film in a focused way as opposed to went to the movies. Uh, and you have De Palma coming out. And then I remember being more enthusiastic about De Palma's films when they came out than I am now. Mm. But it's not De Palma's fault. Uh, I just saw this film that some people truly find loathsome, but other people think is great. Uh, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Mm-hmm. Okay, why do we have the soundtrack from 400 Blows and Vertigo and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly? Okay, you know these scores. What relevance do they have to the film that you've made? I, I haven't seen Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl, but those are those tracks lifted into the movie? Or they're, they're du- duplicated. Hmm. But you just know them. You just mm-hmm. you know, okay, that's Vertigo. Why? And Noam Baumbach, too, 
does that. Francis Ha, okay, you know the soundtrack to Jules and Jim. You're capturing, you're attempting to capture some of the lightness of Jules and Jim. It doesn't work. Yeah. Um, uh, Francis Ha was certainly a, a nod to Truffaut. Oh, of course it was. Yeah. Jules and Jim especially. And you have in, uh, oh, While We're Young or something like that, the most recent one, yeah. fundamentally lifting George De La Rue's lifting of Vivaldi score, the Vivaldi score for Day for Night. Really? I haven't seen it. I have it over on the table there. I haven't yeah, and it's it. like, and I, I um, and then going back to revisit Dress to Kill, what I found kind of fun, because I've seen these other films where, okay, you bet, why I don't need such so slavish reproduction of what Hitchcock did. So on the one hand, I, well, the art, the, the pure raw craftsmanship. I mean, you're right. That whole scene in uh, in the museum, hmm. the combination of camera movement, it, it just that it was all done in silence. It's incredibly suspenseful. Well, he's very interested in getting you into the mood of the movie over the. And, and that that being of paramount importance over the narrative, and you get you know you're really drawn into the whole feeling of it, you know the the, the mood. One of the things that's an interesting variation is given your thinking about the psychologically, we have two fantasized shower murders, and mm -hmm. De Palma's enough of a dirty man, old man. I mean, yeah, it's a good excuse to film. Uh, you, you had a body double for Angie Dickinson, mm. and you don't have a body double for what's her name, Nancy Allen. It is interesting that he went to battle with the, um, you know, the MPAA to to get it taken down from an X rating. I guess there's maybe a difference of thirty seconds that, you know, were more revealing in the shower, and then uh, the violence in the elevator murder scene, which was really well done. De Palma, yeah. De Palma said that that is that may be the best thing he's done in film or was it the best thing he's done in film or his best murder but uh it, it's it is one of his personal favorite moments is the uh the uh, the elevator sequence which is pretty and what's interesting from a De Palma standpoint we have these two fantasized shower murder scenes the, the last one it's pretty much gratuitous it's just a, a chance for him to film that glorious looking Nancy Allen naked which I didn't mind but the really good state is not a shower murder. And whereas in Psycho, it is the shower murder. There's the, you know, the best stage murder scene in, in, uh, in the film. The Arbogast thing's pretty good, too. But here, where he's introduced the shower murder, so we're thinking of that. But what we have is the elevator murder sequence, which is really well done. Mm -hmm. Beautifully edited. And uh, interesting in its use of reflections. I think, I think the mirrors and the windows and the reflections that are that appear in, uh, you know, in, in uh, De Palma's framing in the film are, are, uh, are interesting unto themselves. Well, that's right. It, it, throughout De Palma's work, in one way or another, there is a, a strong sense of duality. And yeah. You have that, you have... Um, I wonder if, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I wonder ahead. that that sense of duality, I wonder if he's just blatantly referring to that with his use of split screen. You know, two oh, things, still two, two things at time, happening too. at the same time, yeah. or maybe one thing's happening that's in reality on one side of the film, and then fantasy in the other. It's a sort of a, it's a, confu it's a, it's confusing. You don't sort of know, you know, what's real and what's not. Well, yeah, but of course, you know, at the core of the thing, not convincingly, uh, but at the core of the thing is the split personality of Michael Caine, who seems to be having fun with with the performance, but it's 
not as well developed, say, as Norman Bates in in, in Psycho, mm. but it's fun. Uh, certainly, there's in this film. Of course, he has that movie Body Double. Mm. I mean, of course. Yeah. And one of the interesting things, fantasy reality. When Pauline Kael wrote her what is a favorable review of Dress, uh, Dress to Kill in the New Yorker, she focuses on the opening sequence where she, uh, and she thinks it was maybe around 40 when she made this, and sort of interesting that a lot of actresses when they turn 40 do like to have nude scenes. Uh, mm-hmm. Marissa Tomei and The uh, the Wrestler, uh, What's-Her-Face, Meg Ryan in that awful film. Uh, <laughs> uh, I forget the name of it. But here, and I remember Pauline Kael's review very... It's as if Demi Moore in uh, yeah. Robert Redford uh, film. Oh, right, indecent proposal. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, here she made something interesting. Whether or not De Palma was aware of it, I don't know. The body in, uh, that's supposed to be Angie Dickinson is truly spectacular. Taking the shower, mm. and the camera almost lasciviously lingers on it. But I think that's where uh, the impetus for Body Double was derived from was the, the, the filming of the shower scenes and the use of the body double. But what is interesting, uh, because you don't, it, the whole Angie Dixon character is afraid that she's losing her sexual allure. The whole conversation with uh, her shrink is like, you know, problems she's having with her husband, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So what Pauline Kael says, I think, insightfully, uh, is that, the body that we see in the opening shower sequence is the body she wished she would have at this point in her life. It's not the body of the age she really has. Mm-hmm. It's a fantasized body. And even though it's a real body, it's a real body double, but uh, it's the body she wishes she still had. That is inter- that interesting that she puts it that way because it isn't entirely convincing the, uh, when it cuts together. No, but... It, well, who knows? You don't think of that. You're watching the body in the, in, when you're watching mm. the film. But uh, the idea that uh, it's just interesting to think about because she's afraid she's losing her sexual allure. Mm. And it, it, it's almost bad writing, but when she asked Michael Caine, would you sleep with me? Would you like to have sex with me? That kind of whatever she says. Mm. Uh, and she really wants a reassuring yes. And in the, in the ways of a horror film, she's punished for her... Uh Discretion. Very yeah. discretion. And uh, we never get into really the psyche of the Michael Caine character as much as we get into the psyche of Norman Bates. And of course, when she dies, that theme comes to an end. Uh, but it is there. And I don't know whether De Palma had this in mind or whether Pauline Kael is right or not doesn't makes less difference, but it is, it is interesting that... Um, she made that comment. In spite of the fact that there's, all the way through the film, there are references to Hitchcock, Psycho, and Vertigo. His structure style is different. Even though Hitchcock is very definitely a stylist, uh, I think uh, De Palma shows his Italian-American origins. Hmm. His films are less logical. They're, they're, it's like opera, a series of set pieces uh, that go on brilliantly staged yeah. individual scenes and then when you get to the end which really doesn't resolve or as Psycho get, resolves in its own way what's been going on in Psycho we have two extraordinarily staged fantasy sequences yeah. Yeah. And, and they're wonderfully staged but it's more like as I said it's more like Italian opera 
than it is, you know, sustained suspense narrative. Uh-huh. These are, and he's brilliant at the set pieces. And of course, the two that we mentioned earlier, the, um, uh, the museum scene, which is just staggeringly good filmmaking, yeah. and the, uh, the, uh, elevator, uh, the elevator murder sequence. Yeah. Uh, these are really good. But when one thinks of it, you don't think of, ooh, how does one thing lead to another? You don't really think of character. And even when you're watching the things like Blowout, you notice the uh, fireworks scene at the end. I mean, it, it, these are in, in certain scenes with the uh, uh, with the use of the sound, uh, yeah. but he really does have like you know, sensibility of Italian opera. He goes for these really drawn out close ups, like up uh, on the uh, on the on the knife in the elevator scene. Yep. On the uh, on um, the murderer in the elevator scene, just, you know, lingering on that. Uh, the extending the whole closing of the elevator door for dramatic effect. Yes. You know? And that's where they, these are good set pieces. Mm. Uh, and he really shows filmmaking craftsmanship in that. Mm. On the other hand, because the, the references to Psycho are so clear, he eliminates the element of surprise with the Michael Caine character. Partly because the, the, the makeup... Or the, the the wardrobe, we we now we've seen Psycho, so we know what it is, and so there's no even with the the parody of the uh, the the last scene in Psycho where the Simon Oakland explains everything, we know this already, and so we then just go on to the set pieces, uh, mm-hmm. and because there's no more story to tell, and just as although I suppose just as we like watching. The body double for Angie Dickinson's body at the beginning. We um, enjoyed Nancy um, Allen's body at the end. Yeah, um, that was another one of the scenes that uh, was was edited for the MPAA when she strips for Michael Caine in the office there. She oh, was it? Yeah, some of uh, some of her dialogue was. I w- some of the dialogue was cut. Yeah, because even oh, that's interesting because I was sort of surprised at how graphic that dialogue uh, was. Hmm. Even just watching it 30 years later, that sort of surprised me. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's. You know what's also fascinating is his use of the split diopter lens, where the images in the foreground right. are just as in focus as the images in the background, and two things, you know, playing out. He he uses that a few times to some really interesting effect in the film. Yeah, he he does, and again the, the split screen is in some ways a carryover from some of the uh, 70s stylistics. Or even late '60s stylistics, but um, as a well, carryover, but it's used well here. I, re- I remember um, using using the split focus lens. We, I did this TV movie as, as a camera assistant called the Lo- the Lookalike, which aired on the the USA Network in the early '90s. It was with Melissa Gilbert, and there was a scene where we were shooting in this house where uh, the cinematographer, my boss, who decided to use the uh, the split focus lens, and we thought I was like so excited because this is so arty. This is so film school. We're going to focus in the distance, and we're going to focus in the foreground, and you know, and play it real, uh, real thriller-like. So you know, it was kind of like we got a kick out of doing the arty thing on the set there. You know, the opportunity to do that. I mean, how often do you get to use the the split focus lens? Well, if <laughs> um, the, you get um, to you get to break it out for the rare shot. <laughs> if it is true that De Palma was a big fan of Godard, you know, and maybe had a, a even though there's no influence here, he was having fun with the new hardware. Look what I can do! I've got this to play with. Yeah, uh, he's a he's a he's a um, a technical director in the sense that maybe George Lucas would be, but not as cold, not right, as uh, 
But you take Delicious. a look at Godard's latest film, well, the film has been released here, the Goodbye to Language, where he uses yeah. like half a dozen, no, at least a dozen or more different cameras for 3D effects. And you can see this guy in his 80s just having fun playing with the camera, seeing what I, look what I can do. Mm. And to a certain extent, that's why I say there's that operatic quality about this film for De Palma, that it is like, okay, I got the stuff, I can do this. And whether or not it relates to in any deep way to the story he's trying to tell, it's 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 um, uh, makes for entertaining viewing. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. You know, in terms of narrative, it doesn't you know it doesn't quite do it for you me. You know, if I ever had the opportunity to interview him, I'd ask him if he felt if he feels like he has to press the boundaries of sexuality and violence, or he felt like he did when he was you know, making films in the late 70s, early 80s, that he always had to push it and go to battle to get it, you know, keep it in the movie. I mean, you know, Scarface was exceptionally violent. Still is, you know. Sex and violence, um, yeah. It's kind of kind of, his, uh, kind of his thing. You know, he's been criticized by some critics, because that's what they do, of being depraved, of being misogynist. And if I recall his response in one interview question about being misogynist, it's like, well, you know, I make thrillers, and I follow people around, and if I have to follow somebody around, I prefer it to be a woman, like it's just the nature of the beast or something. Yeah, I, I don't see that as misogynistic. I, I, I don't either. I, I, I see it as, um, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, Godard had his, uh, you know, Anna Karenina, you know, the, uh, yeah. everybody has, the, you know, uh, uh, Antonioni had his Monica Vitti. And uh, Bergman had his Lee Volman. Sure. I mean, you know, you, you become the taken with the, you know. The, yeah, and it's, it's, and again, it may just simply be, he likes the chance of uh, getting women to take their clothes off and filming them. It may be, <laughs> maybe be. more than that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's really... Uh, Maybe I wonder if he's kind of lampooning that, at the, uh, poking fun at himself in the beginning of Blowout, with that um, that fake horror movie murder scene, that fake. Uh, oh right, stalking. But he pokes fun at himself in Body Double too. I mean, or poking, poking funny at the fun at the convention. Conventions of the horror film. Now, whether or not he still wants to film that body naked, by that time he was with that body naked every night. So it was like, okay, why would he want to film it? Um, but, yeah, that is an element in De Palma's filmmaking that, okay, you see the provocateur. Yeah. Um, I still feel that you know, there's kind of a, a way that uh, he is a, a, a master of technique and there's a little bit of show-offiness there. Hmm. But um, you know, no matter what, with all of my reservations aside, Dress to Kill is fun to watch. I just wish it resonated any more deeply than that. Um, it certainly didn't get a fair shake when it was released. It was sort of drummed, you know. It uh, was nominated for Razzies. Uh, Michael Caine was nominated for Worst Actor. Uh, oh, was that yeah, right? Yeah, and uh, Nancy Allen, although she had received an award for being the best new star of the year, I forget from who, uh, she also received a Razzie nomination for uh, Dress to Kill. Mind you, so did The Shining. So, you know, things kind of turn around many, many years later for certain films. But people Not always seen, right first time around. People Not that they were still watch Dress to Kill. Yeah, uh, it's one of those films. That, oh, you've seen Dress to Kill? I've seen it recently. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's you know again on the on the very basic level, it's fun to sit through. You know, um, Keith Gordon, who plays uh, Angie Dickinson's son in the film, 
greatly admires and uh, is grateful for the uh, had the opportunity to work with De Palma on the uh, on that movie. And he's used a lot of what he's learned from De Palma and watching him as a uh, you know in his current career in his career as a um, uh, as a TV director. I mean, episodes okay. of uh, Dexter and God, what else has he done? The Leftovers. Yeah, I, I could see him putting to use some of the things that De Palma might have used in some episodes of Dexter. Well, just like, you know. Um, so, you know, De Palma's had an influence, an influence on Tarantino. Sure. You know, for sure. Oh, yeah, you can't do a, a credible talk about, re, you know, filmmaking the last 40, 50 years without, without taking into account De Palma. He's he, certainly, he's, in terms of any depth of theme or anything like that, it's a little bit too flashy for that. And there are, there are recurring motifs. Uh, I think the duality thing is there, but I don't think he's really exploring it. He's just, it's just there. And De Palma would never do what Hitchcock did with uh, having Psycho be the first part of a trilogy, uh, Psycho, The Birds, and Marnie, mm. where, especially in Marnie, where you really are ex further exploring the nature of personality. Uh, uh, you know, every time we get into a conversation about a certain filmmaker, I'm always inspired to, you know, watch again or watch... Uh, uh, you know, one of their titles in their filmography that I haven't seen, and uh, Brian De Palma is inspiring in that sense. There's there's a couple of films of his that I haven't seen that I'd love to see. Uh, Home Movies, which was uh, kind of well, it, he made it before Dress to Kill. Did he make it after The Fury? It might have been after The Fury. Anyway, it was uh, very hard to get on VHS for a while. It was a, a rarity and not uh, widely distributed. So that's one that I hadn't seen. And then there's this. Um, uh, a couple of current ones, uh, I forget the, oh Christ, I forget the titles, but uh, Pino Donaggio, had, you know, he was still working with Pino Donaggio after all those 80s films, still up until uh, I've present day. I've forgotten about The Fury. I remember liking it enough to see it twice when it came out. Yeah. And God, yeah. nobody talks about that film anymore. That's It was an interesting film. I remember that movie as a kid. Uh, this may not mean anything to you, but when I, when I was a kid, there was an amusement park in Chicago called Old Chicago. And it was only open for four years, from 76 to 1980. And it was an entirely indoor amusement park. And I remember seeing on the news that where they used Old Chicago as the location for the amusement scene in The Fury. Where the ride oh, keeps going around faster and faster and faster, and I and I just uh, you know I boy old Chicago you know just seeing that on screen I just uh, that that was my number one most favorite place in the world old Chicago. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, long long forgotten, but a but a uh, small piece of uh, Chicago history. It was it was right off of Route sixty six southwest of Chicago, in Bolingbrook, and my my father's family had a farm down there that ran up next to the property. So I, I could see this huge building on the horizon that was just the uh, the amusement park. I just love that place. Well, I love amusement parks. And my son did so, a music video recently. Really? Which was a homage to the 400 Blows. Really? And it's set in an amusement park. And maybe maybe listeners should know a little about what your uh, your son has done. He's been do, he's been a music video for director for a while. I'm yeah, sure for these punk rock bands. Yeah. But he just did it for a new band called Bully. But it's set in, a, in a, if any of you have seen the uh, 400 Blows, there's a scene, and again, sort of metaphoric in the 400 Blows. The kids go into one of these things that spin around inside in centrifugal force. Yeah. Pins you to the side. Yeah. 
My son wanted to recreate that scene from the 400 Blows, and he found an amusement park outside of Syracuse, New York, where they still had one of these things. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, kind of a rarity. Yeah. And uh, going on that as a kid. Yeah, he did it there. They there, had one in Old Chicago. <laughs> I, I believe that indoor, and it happened in an yeah. indoor. Usually, they were like these big. They would have them in these sort of like arcade buildings, funhouse arcade buildings mm -hmm. that would be at amusement parks in the old day. But yeah. In many ways, in its own way, De Palma's films are sort of amusement park rides. I mean, why we need, at the end of Dress Kill, two fantasy scenes, I have no idea. But, because um, uh, neither of them resolves anything, but they're fun to watch. And uh, Yeah, they, they are set pieces in and of themselves. Yeah. The, the, that, uh, the psych ward sequence is just uh, kind of nightmarish. And what is? Beautifully yeah. done. What film does it belong in? I'm not quite sure, but uh, that's it. He did it, yeah. and you know, it, it's 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 he's an interesting director. And again, I still, even though I was annoyed by a lot of the uh, just blatant Hitchcock quotes, uh, he it, it still didn't bother me as much as things like um, uh, "Me and Earl and the Dying Girls." Okay, I've seen these movies. Mm -hmm. No, I, I don't care whether the ending of Brokeback Mountain was. Um, uh, uh, I know it was touching and moving and all that. You don't need to replicate that here, yeah. uh, but you do, and that's okay. So you seen Brokeback Mountain, good, and uh, uh, all this postmodernism just keeps feeding on itself. It does morphing and, and morphing. Every now and then, you want to see a film that's just an utter original. I know that's hard, but occasionally in this decade, there have been films, certainly. Um, I can't think of any film reference whatsoever to one of my favorite films of the decade, Beast of the Southern Wild, another original. Yeah. And in many ways, in uh, not quite as radically as Beast of the Southern Wild, because you can tell it is, uh, but Whiplash and Nebraska are films that, like, wait a minute, they're doing things here that, that are a little bit different. You know, it kind of makes me wonder if there, if there are those films in De Palma's filmography that really go off and are, are something unto themselves. You know, well, I do kind of think if you're talking about wanting to go back and revisit, I think I might want to revisit, revisit Casualties of War and certainly Fury, yeah. uh, the Fury and uh, terrific score by John Williams. I've always I'd uh, I'd revisit those and probably either Greetings or Hi Mom. Uh, I'd, I'd go back and see uh, what those might like. be hard to get. I know that uh, uh, Murder All the Mode is on the, is on the Criterion's blowout disc as an extra. Well, the others, I'm not sure. Somebody recently showed Hi Mom somewhere. Because hmm. uh, I know it's come across uh, you know, my radar screen. But this is a good talk. I'm glad we did this. Thanks, David. And De Palma's you know, certainly uh, somebody worth revisiting. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can visit us online at DiaboliqueMagazine.com. And, of course, don't forget to pick up the latest issue of Diabolique Magazine. If you have any comments about the Diabolique webcast, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. I'm at Steve at HorrorUnlimited.com. I'm Stephen Slaughterhead. Until next time, so long, everyone. <laughs>